William Wilberforce is remembered today mainly for his long parliamentary campaign for the abolition of the slave trade. He took up the cause of Africa and the West Indian slaves in 1786, and the Act of Parliament for Abolition was finally passed and became law on March the 25th, 1807. Not that that was the end of the struggle. Wilberforce had always seen trading in human beings and its abolition as but the first step towards the ultimate goal of the abolition of slavery itself. And this objective wasn't attained until 1833. By then, Wilberforce had been retired from the politics of Westminster for eight years and had handed on to others the baton of the anti-slavery campaign. But it was his joy to live just long enough to hear of the final success in the House of Commons of the bill for the abolition of slavery. He died two days after it was passed. Now, although it's for this success that Wilberforce is chiefly remembered now, it's my intention not to focus in this lecture upon that aspect of his work. I've been asked to speak on Wilberforce's impact on 19th century society. And in my view, Wilberforce's greatest impact on 19th century British society came not through his work on behalf of the slaves, but through the other great task to which he believed that he was called of God. It was on Sunday, October the 28th, 1787, that Wilberforce wrote in his diary, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, by which he meant the reform of the morals of Britain. And his own personal impact on 19th century society, I would suggest, was greater in his campaign for the reformation of manners. In the battle against slavery, Wilberforce was one of a team of people united in the cause. He was not the prime mover nor the chief visionary. His was not the greatest intellect. And the reason why it's the name of William Wilberforce, which is remembered in connection with the anti-slave trade movement today, rather than, for example, those of Charles Middleton or James Ramsey, Thomas Clarkson, Granville Sharp, or several others we might mention, is that of this tight-knit circle... Wilberforce was the man with the public voice and with the contacts in places of power, but he did not carry the fight alone. And the victory of the abolitionists was really the result of committed and effective teamwork. When we come to his second objective, though, Wilberforce did bring about a change in the mood of the nation, which it is arguable can be traced directly and solely to him. Certainly others gathered round him as time went on. But the campaign for the reformation of manners began as a single-handed effort of Wilberforce. And he remained the leading figure in the campaign to the end. And therefore it's this aspect of his work that I want to speak about tonight. It was in the early months of 1787 
just after he'd embarked on his research into the question of slavery, that Wilberforce first voiced his personal concern to reform the manners of England. His confidants were his colleague in the anti-slavery movement, Sir Charles Middleton, and the Bishop of Chester, Bealby Porteous. The matter which gave rise to this concern was the multitude of hangings that were taking place for serious crime. Wilberforce believed that the prevalence of offences liable to the death penalty was due to the lack of enforcement of laws dealing with lesser crimes. The contempt for lesser laws that resulted put potential offenders on the downward course towards ever greater criminality. And he concluded that if laws against non-capital offences, such as drunkenness, indecent publications, the profanation of the Lord's Day, if these laws were enforced, if breaches were properly punished, then good manners and public decency would be improved, with the result that capital offences would become less frequent. Now, his interest in this area probably began in the summer of 1786. That summer, he introduced in the House of Commons a bill with this title. For regulating the disposal after execution of the bodies of criminals executed for certain offences and for changing the sentence pronounced upon female convicts in certain cases of high and petty treason. In the end, the bill failed partly because of its muddled nature. Its two objectives were only loosely connected. The first of them was designed to assist the study of anatomy. As the law stood at the time, the bodies of executed murderers could be made available to surgeons for dissection and research. However, the number of people executed for murder was relatively small, with the result that a kind of black market in corpses had grown up. And the bill proposed to extend the legitimate availability of the bodies of executed criminals to include those executed for other offences in addition to murder. The second objective of the bill was to bring about a humanisation of one form of capital punishment. At the time, a woman convicted of treason was sentenced to be burnt. Wilberforce's proposal was to alter that to the less prolonged death of hanging. Now, it was probably his preparation of this bill which first alerted Wilberforce to the large number of executions which were taking place and which set in train the thought process which faced up to the national moral malaise and which soon culminated in this concern to reform the manners of Britain. However, it was earlier that same year that Wilberforce had experienced conversion to evangelical Christianity. He saw this as his first discovery of Christianity in any genuine sense at all, and described it as the great change. And really, it was this experience which was preeminent in leading him, leading him into both his concerns. 
In the autumn of 1784 and the summer of 1785, Wilberforce undertook in two stages a grand tour of Europe. He went with his friend Isaac Milner. In the course of conversation on one occasion, Wilberforce was taken aback when ridiculing the views of the Methodists to hear his companions spring to their defence. Wilberforce was quite unaware that Milner had any Methodist sympathies. In 1784, of course, the word Methodist was not yet a denominational label. It described a spiritual movement as much inside as outside the established church. For the higher classes within the Anglican establishment, however, the word Methodist was a term of disparagement. It was equated with what was then known as enthusiasm, what we today would call fanaticism, and it was dismissed with a sneer. Before 1785, Wilberforce was a typical upper-class Anglican, and therefore to understand his conversion experience, it's necessary to understand the general condition of the 18th century church. The religion of the time has been described as cold and decorous. The Church of England was lifeless and its clergy were lacking in spiritual fervour. On the whole, Christians were lax and indifferent. It was said that the typical sermon contained as much Christianity as the writings of Cicero and could be preached without causing offence in a mosque or a synagogue. And Dr Samuel Johnson once commented that he'd never met a clergyman who was religious. The Wesleyan revival had had a great impact on the poorer classes, but generally speaking had left the higher strata of society untouched. The name that is usually used for this kind of 18th century Anglicanism is latitudinarianism. This denotes a religion with a minimal doctrinal content, the wisdom and benevolence of the creator whose sovereign rule was fatherly. That was the central theological emphasis. And this was taken to imply the dignity and the safety of humankind within a universe of order and beauty. And the corollary of this theology was its ethical imperative. It was the duty of the human race to reflect the benevolence of their heavenly father as revealed in natural law, and so to reap the rewards that virtue would bring. A serious latitudinarian, such as Wilberforce was, could therefore be a very moral man. And by the standards of the age, that was not too difficult. Even amongst the cultured classes, morality was at a low ebb, and manners were coarse, and Wilberforce was religiously committed being a regular participant in the rituals of the church. This, too, was unusual in an age when scepticism and apathy prevailed. Now, while on their continental tour, Wilberforce and Milner read and discussed a book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, by Philip Doddridge, best known today as the author of the hymn we sang a few minutes ago. Milner was already acquainted with the work, and when Wilberforce asked whether it was worth reading, he gave an enthusiastic endorsement. 
But for Wilberforce, the message of this book was to prove novel. Doddridge's concern is the neglect of religion, even in a professedly Christian and Protestant nation. He laments the infidelity, the lax morality, the carelessness about spiritual things which were so general. And a man of principle and morality like Wilberforce would heartily concur in such a lament. But Doddridge soon goes on to maintain that even where there is a freedom from any gross and scandalous immorality, an external decency of behaviour and attendance on the outward forms of worship, yet amid all this there is nothing which looks like the genuine actings of the spiritual and divine life. Now, at this point, we can imagine Wilberforce being startled. His own latitudinarian religious upbringing had led him to the view that external morality and outward form were the sum total of religion. Now he must read that, among such as he, there is no cordial belief of the gospel of salvation, no eager solicitude to escape that condemnation which we have incurred by sin. No hearty concern to secure that eternal life which Christ has purchased and secured for his people and which he freely promises to all who will receive him. These would have been novel ideas indeed to Wilberforce. Latitudinarianism was not inclined to warn people of condemnation, having little concept of sin. It implied that the moral man could purchase eternal life for himself by virtue of his very morality. And Doddridge continues to underline the error of such religion. He speaks of the careless sinner, and then he skillfully shows who it is to whom such a phrase refers. I will not, he says, imagine you to be a profane and abandoned profligate, I will not suppose that you allow yourself to blaspheme God, to dishonour his name by customary swearing, or grossly to violate his Sabbath, or commonly to neglect the solemnities of his public worship. I will not imagine that you have injured your neighbours in their lives, their chastity or their possessions, either by violence or by fraud. In opposition to all this, I will suppose that you believe the existence and providence of God and the truth of Christianity. I will also suppose your conduct among men to be not only blameless, but amicable, and that those who know you most intimately must acknowledge that you are just and sober, humane and courteous, compassionate and liberal. The careless sinner in other words, is a moral and religious man. Yet, with all this, says Doddridge, you may lack the one thing on which your eternal happiness depends. Well, by now, it would be very obvious to Wilberforce that Doddridge is speaking about him, that he, he himself is the sort of person that Doddridge is prepared to call a nominal Christian. Doddridge proceeds to re-emphasise the point that moral men are guilty before God, that if the present world is their sole preoccupation, they are neglecting vital religion. 
that true religion is an all-absorbing sense of God's presence and love which has a profound impact upon the total direction of a person's life. Well, having exposed the sinfulness of his generation and left the religious moralist of the 18th century with no props intact, he then proclaims the true gospel. He tells of God's gracious determination to send his own son into the world, to be not merely a teacher of righteousness and a messenger of grace, but also a sacrifice for the sins of men. Accordingly, Doddridge continues, the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily submitted himself to death, even the death of the cross, and having been delivered for our offences, was raised again for our justification. He goes on to elaborate upon this basic statement, clearly explaining the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement on the basis of which the sinner may be pardoned and accepted by God as righteous. By February 1785, Wilberforce had reached the point of intellectual assent to this biblical gospel that he'd learned from reading Doddridge and discussing it with Milner. But for some months, these doctrines remained mere opinions in his mind as he had to return to the hectic schedule of a new parliamentary session. And so it was that the second stage of the tour with Milner gave Wilberforce the leisure to ponder more deeply these doctrines of true religion. And as his conviction of their truth grew more profound, he entered upon a period of intense spiritual agony. He wrote, Often... While in the full enjoyment of all that this world could bestow, my conscience told me that in the true sense of, a wo of the word I was not a Christian. The thought would steal across me. What madness is all this? To continue easy in a state in which a sudden call out of the world would consign me to everlasting misery, and that when eternal happiness is within my grasp. Well, at last, in the early months of 1786, Wilberforce was able, by the grace of God, to make the grasp of faith and to enter into the comfort of the gospel. From now on, there was to be a new motivation to his political career. And so it was that he embraced his two great causes in addition to many other humanitarian concerns to which he devoted smaller amounts of time. So let's turn our attention more closely to Wilberforce's campaign for the reformation of manners. In this campaign, there were two key moments. The first was the formation in 1787 of what became known as the Proclamation Society, the second was the publication ten years later of a book written by Wilberforce. And we'll look at each of these in turn. First, the Proclamation Society. Around the time when he was preparing his bill concerning capital punishment in 1786, Wilberforce read a book 
by Dr. Joseph Woodward, entitled The History of the Society for the Reformation of Manners in 1692. It was traditional at that time for a new monarch to mark his accession to the throne by issuing a proclamation for the encouragement of piety and virtue and for the preventing of vice, profaneness and immorality. Most of these proclamations were merely a form of words. But in reading Woodward's history, Wilberforce discovered that William III's proclamation of 1692 had made a real impact. And this apparently was due to the fact that local societies for the reformation of manners had been formed. Behind this initiative, there was an approach to the Queen by a bishop on behalf of a number of churchmen who were perturbed by the vice and corruption of the day. The royal proclamation had been issued and sanction for the societies had been granted. The intended purpose of these societies was to create a new moral tone in the land and to stem the rising tide of unbelief. In practice, the first part of this purpose was to be achieved by bringing to justice offenders in such areas as lewdness, swearing and drunkenness. The societies acted as law enforcement agencies and sought to suppress public debauchery. And by all accounts, this initiative was very effective. In London alone, in the ten years up to 1702, the local societies were responsible for 20,000 convictions for swearing, cursing and profaning the Lord's Day, and 3,000 for lewdness and disorder. And it was in the course of his reading that Wilberforce conceived the idea of setting up a similar society to attempt to counteract the very similar problems which England still faced nearly a hundred years later. At that time, corruption was rife at every rank of society. The well-to-do were notorious for gambling, whilst amongst the poorer classes, prostitution abounded, and drunkenness and foul talk were common to all levels of, so of society. In devising his plan to form a new society for the reformation of manners, Wilberforce believed, as we've already seen, that the way to begin was by making the strict combating of crime an effective deterrent. The society was designed to raise the moral tone of the nation by clamping down on offences, such as the publication of indecent and blasphemous literature and the desecration of the Lord's Day. And in targeting such offences in particular, Wilberforce was expressing his conviction that the looseness of the nation's morals arose from the religious apathy and scepticism which prevailed amongst all classes. His plan was that his Society for the Reformation of Manners should restore England to its Protestant faith by standing against those moral offences which militated against Christianity. And as a by-product, he believed, 
there would follow a general moral improvement. Well, having voiced his proposal to Middleton and Porteous early in 1787 and discovered that they were favourable, he then sounded out the opinions of others, including leading churchmen and senior politicians. And on discovering wide general sympathy, Wilberforce, via the Archbishop of Canterbury, approached the king. Now, King George III was himself a morally upright and God-fearing man. In both these respects, he was an untypical member of the royal family. He therefore warmed to Wilberforce's proposal, and his agreement was secured to issue a proclamation along the lines of that of 1692. And so it was on the 1st of June, 1787, that the royal proclamation was published in the national press and posted on hoardings around the land. In the preamble, the king expressed his concern at the rapid progress of impiety and licentiousness, at the deluge of profaneness, immorality and every kind of vice which had broken in upon the nation. And he declared his royal purpose to discountenance and punish all manner of vice, profaneness and immorality in all persons of whatsoever degree or quality within this our realm. And he went on to urge all persons of honour or authority to set a good example themselves and then to help to reform persons of dissolute and debauched lives. The playing of dice, cards or any other game on the Lord's Day was prohibited and all the king's subjects were to attend the worship of God. Those guilty of drinking to excess, of blasphemy, of swearing, cursing or lewdness, of profaning the Lord's day, were to be sought out and prosecuted, and judges and sheriffs were to suppress all public gaming, disorderly house, houses and unlicensed places of entertainment, and the publishers and vendors of licentious prints and books were to be punished. The statutes preventing commerce on Sunday were to be enforced. The release of the proclamation was deliberately low-key and Wilberforce's part in it was not immediately known to most of the people who read it when it was first published. But he, meanwhile, had been busy laying the foundations for his society for the reformation of manners. He'd been rallying support from people in positions of influence and by the end of July had built up quite an impressive list of sympathisers. Because he was now linking his plan with the Royal Proclamation, the Society actually became known as the Proclamation Society. And its committee met for the first time on the 28th of November, consisting, in addition to Wilberforce himself, of Sir Charles Middleton, the Honourable Edward Elliot, and three bishops. And the launch of the society was, without any great ceremony, 48 selected men were circulated with the information 
But Wilberforce was insistent that nothing was to be announced to the world beyond the fact that certain gentlemen have felt the necessity of attending to His Majesty's call and have agreed to assist in carrying the proclamation into effect. Already before that November meeting, Wilberforce had begun preparations for local associations which should be able to enforce the provisions of the proclamation at grassroots level. And in this, again, he was imitating the structure of the Society for the Reformation of Manners of the previous century. He believed, probably with justification, that it was this devolved arrangement which was the chief factor in that that society's success. Now, there is one element of incongruity in the fact that Wilberforce was consciously copying the work of the 17th century society for the reformation of manners. The men who were responsible for setting up that previous society had mostly been latitudinarians. The latitudinarian archbishops of Canterbury, John Tillotson, and his successor Thomas Tennyson, had been keen supporters It was the very moralistic religion from which Wilberforce's conversion had delivered him which had been the driving impetus of the earlier society. And Wilberforce himself did not restrict membership of the Proclamation Society to evangelicals and some of his recruits were hardly religious in any sense. He welcomed the support of any person of concern and goodwill. And maybe in this, we can see something of Wilberforce, the shrewd politician. He was in no doubt that the underlying cause of England's moral malaise was religious. The church was ill-equipped to meet the challenge of the hour because of its own departure from the fundamental truths of evangelical Christianity. Nevertheless... He was prepared to couch his campaign, first of all, in merely moral terms, in order to enhance its respectability in the eyes of the upper classes. The challenge to their religious outlook was to come later, when he wrote his book. And so, secondly, Wilberforce's book was in 1797 that it was published, after four years of work. The title was A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in This Country Contrasted with Real Christianity. (laughs) I should call it a practical view, for short. The influence of Doddridge on Wilberforce's thinking is very evident in the book. We've noted how Wilberforce, 12 years earlier, would have been startled on discovering that the latitudinarian brand of Christianity with which he'd been brought up was regarded by Doddridge as nominal. Well, from Doddridge, Wilberforce now borrowed the term nominal Christianity as he set out to address those professing Christians with whom he once himself belonged, but whose religion he was now convinced was less than genuine biblical faith. His purpose in writing was really twofold. First, he wanted to explain to the world the great change which had taken place in his own life 
as a result of being led into an understanding of the truth. He was sharing his testimony, if you like, in the book. Secondly, he wrote with evangelistic purpose. He wanted to confront his contemporaries of his own class with the error in their supposed Christianity and to call them into vital faith. His ambition was to do for the higher classes what the ministry of John Wesley had done for the lower orders of society. And what had been only implicit in the founding of the Proclamation Society, Wilberforce now made explicit in this publication of his call to England's ruling classes to return to the faith of their fathers. And the publication of a practical view served to set the reformation of manners in its larger and proper context. A practical view begins by exposing the inadequacy of the Christianity of the day. People pay homage, Wilberforce admits, to religion or perhaps to mere morality, thinking that this is the sum total of Christianity because of their ignorance of its true fundamentals. And this unconcern with real Christianity can be traced to two maxims. One is that it signifies little what a man believes, look to his practice. The other, of the same family, is that sincerity is all in all. He writes, The first of these maxims proceeds from the monstrous supposition that although we are accountable creatures, we shall not be called upon to account before God for the exercise of our intellectual powers. The second proceeds on this groundless supposition, that the Supreme Being has not afforded us sufficient means of discriminating truth from falsehood or right from wrong. And this ignorance of Christian basics stems, Wilberforce argues, from inadequate conceptions of human nature. He acknowledges that his contemporaries deplore vice, but they fail to trace it to its true origin. They console the pride of human nature by talking of frailty and infirmity, of petty transgressions, of occasional failings and of accidental incidents. But they assume that these are departures from the basic purity of human nature. Far different, says Wilberforce, is the humiliating language of true Christianity. And he then proceeds to depict the universal depravity of man in his fallenness, his reason clouded, his affections perverted, his conscience stupefied. Next, Wilberforce shows how the failure to feel the burden of our sins leads on to an inadequate assessment of the work of our Saviour and to a tendency to find our hope of salvation in ourselves. He declares, We are loudly called upon to examine well our foundations. If anything is unsound and hollow here, the superstructure cannot be safe. That is why it is important to ask the nominal Christian about the means of a sinner's acceptance by God. 
He protests against the error of relying for the future hope on one's own negative or positive merits or on the idea that the demands of divine justice have been moderated with the coming of Christ. He admits that the nominal Christian may make frequent reference to Jesus Christ. Often, however, his name is little different from a superstitious talisman. And in, in evangelistic vein, he continues... Our dependence on our blessed Saviour, as alone the meritorious cause of our acceptance with God, must not be merely formal and nominal, but real and substantial. It is not an occasional invocation of the name or a transient recognition of the authority of Christ that fills up the measure of the term believing in Jesus. We must be deeply conscious of our guilt and misery, heartily repenting of our sins and firmly resolving to forsake them, and thus penitently flying for refuge to the hope set before us, we must found altogether on the merits of our crucified Redeemer our hopes of escape from their deserved punishment and of deliverance from their enslaving power. This must be our first, our last, our only plea. The corollary of this view of salvation, Wilberforce goes on, is the recognition that real Christianity is a commitment which demands the totality of a person's life, doing everything to the glory of God. The contrast with the notion of religion entertained by many is then made explicit. They assign to religion a plot of land in which it has merely a qualified jurisdiction. This done, they have a right to roam at will over the spacious remainder of territory. In other words, religion can claim only a stated proportion of their thoughts, their time, their money and their influence. The rest is theirs. They do with it what they please. To such an attitude, Wilberforce immediately replies, it is scarcely possible to state too strongly the mischief which results from this fundamental error. Its consequences are obvious, for it assumes that the greatest part of human actions are indifferent to religion. The cumulative outcome of this is the gradual diminishing of the province of religion. We no longer recognise the promotion of the glory of God as the object of our most strenuous endeavours. No longer does religion furnish us with a vigorous, habitual and universal principle of action. A life of what Wilberforce calls decent selfishness is taken for genuine Christian commitment. And the pomp and vanities of this world become regarded as the supreme happiness of life. By contrast, in a true Christian, the great truths concerning the unseen world are uppermost. Wilberforce faces the fact that the objects of the present world are given exaggerated magnification to our senses because of their immediacy. But the true Christian 
carefully preserves his future perspective. In his final chapter, Wilberforce proclaims explicitly that nominal Christianity is not Christianity, that the difference is not a trifling one, but that nominal Christianity lacks altogether the radical principle of Christianity, namely the remembrance that we are fallen creatures born in sin and naturally depraved and that we need to be born again to become Christians in a genuine sense. His final challenge is to realise that nominal Christianity in one generation will lead to absolute unbelief in the next. When the printer was first approached, he was dubious. There was not much of a market for religious literature. But on being assured that Wilberforce was prepared to put his name to the book, he agreed that they might venture on 500 copies. To his surprise, the first edition was a sellout in a matter of days, and within six months a further five reprints had sold out. It's been suggested that there was a timeliness about the book, which partly accounts for its success. It appeared at a time of national emergency. Britain was at war with France, and the war was not going well. The French Revolution had seen the overthrow of familiar political principles and had been accompanied by a rejection of established patterns of belief. The resulting alarm and uncertainty, the sense of being adrift from the national moorings, had bred a climate of spiritual hunger which made people willing to read a book like A Practical View. The reception the book received was mixed. In evangelical circles, as was to be expected, it was much praised and it received a warm reception from a wider audience also. On the other hand, again quite predictably, the Anglican establishment dismissed the work as an example of enthusiasm. As early as July 1797, the Monthly Review carried an article opposing Wilberforce's system. The article was centred on the view that the essence of vital Christianity is the habitual practice of virtue and that the belief of certain tenets is not essential to religion. Nevertheless, the author has little hesitation in dismissing Wilberforce's tenets as untrue on the ground that they do not appeal to reason. And really, this review amounts to nothing more than the assertion that reason should be the judge of doctrine, a view which Wilberforce had already argued against in insisting on the normative function of scripture. In 1831, a more substantial reply to Wilberforce was published. Its title was A Vindication of the Religious Opinions of the Higher Classes in This Country. Quite brief by the standards of the day. And the anonymous author styled himself One of the Arraigned. He works through a practical view, chapter by chapter, his intention is to defend the latitudinarians against Wilberforce's accusations, 
But in practice, I think, he succeeds in underlining the fact that Wilberforce is correct in his assessment that there is more than a trifling difference between nominalism and biblical Christianity. We'll note some of the points the author makes. Responding to the charge that most nominal Christians are ignorant of the basic truths of the faith, he argues that there is no professing Christian who does not know at least this much, that he was created by God, redeemed from death, the consequence of original sin, by the incarnation of the Son of God, who had commanded him to be grateful and pious towards God, just, merciful, and benevolent towards men, and that, as he neglected or obeyed this, these commands, he was to expect punishment or reward in a future life. Well, this passage typifies the very distinction which Wilberforce had asserted. The writer sees redemption as being, first of all, from sin's consequence, death, and locates it primarily in the Incarnation. There's no mention of the need to be redeemed from sin itself and no reference to atonement. This represents just the trivialising of sin against which Wilberforce had protested. And there's also a marked emphasis in the vindication on human self-effort with its corollary of punishment or reward according to merit. The sense of the absolute necessity of the merit of Christ is absent and there's little apparent awareness of human helplessness, nor of the need for regeneration. Further evidence of the defendant's erroneous view of sin is found in the next chapter, where he protests against Wilberforce's pessimistic attitude to human nature. Even in a cursed world, he argues, good fruit can be cultivated... As a reference to the inanimate creation, true enough. But to see this as a metaphor of human life itself is, as Wilberforce had shown, to teach an unbiblical view of man. The doctrine of justification put forward in the vindication is curious. The writer distinguishes between primary and ultimate justification. Primary justification is based on the promise of loyalty to God, which, if sincerely made, will issue in the endeavour to amend one's life. Ultimate justification is final acceptance by God with such a degree of favour as one's zeal and sincerity shall be found to have merited. But God, being merciful, will be indulgent towards the imperfections of the endeavoured amendment. Again, we notice that there's no reference to the merit or the atonement of Christ. And Wilberforce's strictures against the idea that God has gone soft on sin seem relevant to this understanding of justification. The awareness that becoming a Christian involves an all-embracing change within and without is completely missing. And these observations suggest that Wilberforce's perception of the religious problem amongst the higher classes in the England of his day was correct. Well, it's time now to turn to the question of the impact of Wilberforce's campaign 
for the reformation of morals. And I'll seek to answer this question in three stages. Looking in turn at the immediate impact during Wilberforce's own lifetime, the medium-term impact in the middle years of the 19th century, and then at the longer-term impact upon the later Victorian era. And it has to be said that at each of these stages, the impact was ambiguous. First, the immediate impact. It's often said that the Proclamation Society did not have a marked effect, and in one sense this is true. Some of the legislative changes that Wilberforce wanted proved impossible to enact, and the society was vulnerable to much contemporary criticism. As early as 1787, Earl Fitzwilliam had urged Wilberforce to abandon his plan, since it would merely encourage hypocrisy. This was a danger of which Wilberforce was well aware. But his view was that although a society for the reformation of manners could not change the human heart, it might make a contribution by removing some of the sources of temptation. He argued that while virtue could not be enforced, it was good to seek to encourage it. In 1802, the name of the Proclamation Society was changed to the Society for the Suppression of Vice. Another contemporary, Sidney Smith, suggested bitterly that it ought to be called the Society for the Suppression of Vice among persons with less than £500 a year. (laughs) And he had a point, because in practice the rich proved in the short term to be impervious to Wilberforce's challenge. Their position made it safe for them to sin with impunity, while the vices of the poor were rigorously attacked. Some people suggest rather cynically that it was fortunate that Wilberforce soon found in the anti-slavery campaign a worthier field for his enthusiasm. But this is surely a misplaced comment in the light of his own understanding of the equal importance of both his great causes. But nevertheless, we must admit that the immediate impact of the work of the Proclamation Society does seem to have been of dubious value. With the publication of A Practical View, though, it was different. It had an impact for good almost immediately, mainly in that some people who had previously been either latitudinarian or completely irreligious were led to genuine conversion through reading it. Secondly, the medium-term impact. In spite of the legitimate criticisms of the Proclamation Society by many of Wilberforce's contemporaries, it's impossible to deny that his campaign to reform manners had an immense impact on the next generation. The historian G.M. Trevelyan has said, the life of William Wilberforce was a fact of importance in the general history of the world and in the social history of our island. Wilberforce had set out to make goodness fashionable, and there's little doubt that he achieved his aim, not immediately through legislation as he'd anticipated, but gradually, by means of a shift in public opinion. And being so widely read, a practical view made a significant contribution In the book, Wilberforce had warned of a coming day when Christianity would be openly disavowed, 
when unbelief would be seen as a social necessity. And John Pollock writes that this could never be said of the Victorian age, but the reverse was not a little due to Wilberforce. The early Victorian period is commonly agreed to have been an age of moral earnestness. An ethic was established which was acknowledged in common by all classes. At the core of this moral society was religion, and within religion, evangelicalism was dominant. The mood of society was one of seriousness and discipline. Sunday observance was its focus, and social disapproval became a fearsome moral force. It was in this period that English merchants gained the reputation of being the most honest in the world. And the reason for this was that otherworldliness had become an everyday conviction. The sense of being accountable to God pervaded society at all levels. And for all this, Wilberforce must be given much of the credit. How we evaluate these facts is another question. Left-wing historians see the moral emphasis as a device for keeping the poor in subjection. But this seems to be an anachronistic criticism. In many ways, the unintended outcome of the common moral code was actually to hasten the progress towards democracy. Now, the early Victorian concern with morality can be seen as obsessive prudery. And no doubt there was much hypocrisy. But it's arguable that a society with a Bible-based morality, even allowing for the hypocritical element, is to be preferred to the decadent Britain of the 18th century or of today. Wilberforce was not unaware of the problem of hypocrisy, but he believed the risk was worth taking, given that an unchristian and immoral society is ripe for divine judgment. And then the long-term impact. It was in the medium term that Wilberforce's campaign bore the greatest fruit. As we move on to consider the longer-term impact, we find that after about 1870, the influence of evangelical religion and Christian morality began to wane. And the impact of Wilberforce's work began to take the form of a reaction against its very success. This involved the growth of a secularised worldview, which at first tried to retain the Christian ethic, but liberated from what they saw as the religious constraints. But in the end, as Wilberforce would have foreseen, Christian morality was jettisoned also. To some extent, a shift in the approach of evangelicals contributed to this reaction. In an interesting study of the temperance movement, Brian Harrison notes how a subtle change took place as late Victorian religion began to put moral reform first. They argued that it would precede conversion. This was to turn Wilberforce's approach on its head. His view was that morality must be rooted in religious commitment and that the reverse was impossible. Now, it would hardly be fair to blame Wilberforce for this later development. But it is perhaps a fact of history that movements tend in time to breed their own opposites. And certainly this is what happened. 
in the latter decades of the 19th century and on into the 20th. Well, it remains to consider what are some of the lessons which we can learn from the life of Wilberforce. And I'll mention four. First, we need to, to share Wilberforce's passion to see the nation's morals reflecting the law and the glory of God. Like him, we need to be convinced of the indispensability of the gospel to our national health. He warned of that coming day when Christianity would be openly disowned and he dreaded such a prospect. We live in the day when his warning has been fulfilled and we can easily become insensitive to the tragedy and evil of the situation. And so we must pray that God will inject into us the same moral passion which was in Wilberforce and which came to mark those middle years of the 19th century. As in his day, large parts of the church have renounced biblical truth. Like him, we must be unashamed to challenge the contemporary forms of counterfeit religion and to fight again for the dominance of evangelicalism in the church. Second, we must remember that holiness cannot be created by legislation. Perhaps a relevant observation today. Many of us, no doubt, are concerned about issues such as Sunday trading and abortion. To try to legislate for morality may, in fact, lead only to hypocrisy and eventually to reaction. And also, we need to be careful lest we put across as biblical a moral code that is our own creation, as the 19th century temperance movement did. Like Wilberforce, we need to be convinced of the primacy of conversion. Until men and women are made new by the Holy Spirit, there will never be a genuine external reformation, which means that as a matter of first importance, we must pray that God will again send revival. And along with that, like Wilberforce, we need to be fearless in confronting the sins of our time. Thirdly, we must learn patience. Wilberforce didn't live to see the profound moral change for which he'd worked, and we must not be put off by the lack of immediate results for our spiritual and moral endeavours. We must develop a long-term view, and like Wilberforce, keep plugging away and never give up. Finally and personally, we need to examine our own lives. We live in a leisured and pleasure-loving age. Material things still, as in Wilberforce's day, loom too large to our minds, and affluence threatens to deaden us to the sense of the eternal. We must constantly remind ourselves of our accountability to God, of the fact that this life is a training ground for the next. As Wilberforce learned in his own conversion, there's more to real Christianity than mere intellectual assent, even to evangelical truth. We must heed his inju injunction to examine our own hearts and ask, have I fled for refuge to the only sure ground of hope? And then to live every moment, to perform every activity in the light of eternity and for the glory of God.
we're deeply indebted to you, Jonathan, for that great introduction to uh, Wilberforce. We have some time now for questions, and uh, we're not going to let you rest for too long. Let you get your breath back for a moment or two. Uh, we do thank you for what you've contributed already, but we're thanking you in anticipation for helping us with some questions. Now, I suggest we organise our question time into two parts, and no doubt the first part will be shorter than the, fir the second. First of all, let's ask Jonathan any questions by way of clarification for anything that he said, anything that's said that we would value a further comment or two on so that we understand precisely what he was getting at in his synopsis of Wilberforce and the great um, contribution that he made to the life of our nation in the latter part of the 18th and early part, middle part of the 19th centuries. And then the second part of our questions, we want to move on to dig deeper into practical lessons for us today, because uh, we have to live at the fag ends of the 20th century, and uh, we need to know, do we not, what God would have us do today. So, let's organise our questions under those two headings. I'm going to be a little bit uh, dictatorial here. I'm sure you'll be quite happy with me doing that. First of all, questions for clarification, and then uh, further questions after that. So, anybody got any questions for clarification after I've given a notice out about a blue Rover car registration F109MCU? If anybody here is the owner of that, could you please move it as it's blocking someone in the nursing home next door. Sorry about that. Now, we'll all look this way instead of embarrassing anybody. <laughs> as this uh, excellent car is now being moved. Um, we buy British, uh, not Volvos. But I uh, had to say that for our chairman's sake. Uh, now, questions for clarification, please. Yes. I was so busy taking notes, I was missing part of what you were saying, so please accept my apologies. In the early part of your talk, um, this is just to tell us that the nominal nature of Christianity at this time was supported by two erroneous maxims. And I've, been, I've left a space here because I've... <laughs> <laughs> it was erroneous maxims. The first one was the view that it doesn't matter what a person believes, their practice is the all-important thing. And the second one was that sincerity is all in all. Any other points for clarification? Yes. Uh, did I understand correctly that, remember correctly, that you said you thought that his evangelical work as such was more important than his work against slavery? No, what, what I said, uh, which was interpreting how he saw it, was that um, they were of equal importance in his mind. Um, how, wh what, I, what, I did in said, what I did say in stating my own opinion was that in terms of its impact in this country, the reformation of manners was greater, but that wasn't the same as to say it was more important in Wilberforce's own thinking, certainly not. It's just that it seemed to me, as you were proceeding, that it was not, I thought it not unreasonable to conclude that the one was synonymous with the other. And I doubt very much if you'd have had any more success with his evangelical work if he had not been equally successful in his anti-slavery work, however much a teamwork it was. And I doubt very much 
if he'd have been successful with anti-slavery work, if he hadn't been successful with his evangelical work and the morality that spring from it, because in a sense, it's where one has to see that his anti-slavery work was a protest against the great evil of his time. I don't think one can underestimate the forces that would be stacked against him as a test of his great courage and of his religious faith, whatever form that may at that time have taken. But I, I think one cannot really imagine the opposition of vested interests, both political and financial and, and, and trade, and that they'd have had a, a terrible opposition to, to fight against. And therefore I think the two, to my reckoning, aspects are, are rightly co-equal. Next question at the back. You did say um, when you were talking about this anti-slavery bill that he had he wasn't he was one of a, a group of people and it was actually him who was in a position to make his voice heard more, but they did just as much work as him. Is that what yes. you yes, that's what you're trying to say? But just to add to that, in, in some senses, others of the group did more than he did mm -hmm. um, in terms of the research and the, the background knowledge. And these were the people who you referred to from the talk. I mean, there was a few names mentioned a few times. Is yes, right? um, I, I referred to a few of them. There, there was quite a number, too many to mention them all. Um, but uh, people like Charles Middleton, James Stephen, uh, Brandlesharp. Was it the went on no, no. Isaac Milner, that was... He wasn't, he wasn't involved um, directly in the anti-slavery work. After his conversion, um, did he change his place of worship? <laughs> uh, short answer is no. <laughs> um, he, he um, in many respects, Wilberforce had quite a mobile life um, and uh, he remained a committed Anglican all his life. Um, I don't know whether you mean by place, whether he changed denomination or whether he moved to another parish church, but uh, he, it was his practice to worship at the parish church wherever he happened to be at the time. There's nothing wrong with being an Anglican as long as you remain faithful to the Bible. Any other questions? <laughs> Any other questions by way of clarification? Well, I just wish Anglicans were faithful to the Bible, but that's another issue. Well, it's uh, germane to what we're talking about tonight, isn't it? And it's germane to uh, where we go from here. Well, if there's no further points for clarification, let's dig deeper then and see what he's got to teach us about how we live today. Who's going to set the ball rolling at this point? Uh, when you were mentioned about some of the trade and some of the gambling and things like this, now, in the early days, even before the Victorian times, in the houses of Parliament, there's always used to be somebody who was strong in speaking up for God in, inside the houses of Parliament, and yet you don't hear that nowadays from any of the ministers. No, I understand what you mean. Um, I mean, obviously, 
almost anybody here could probably answer that question. Um, it surely, um, because the number of uh, genuine believers within the land is in decline, um, therefore there are fewer genuine believers called of God to a political life and career. And that's why I made the point that we do need to pray for revival because as God revives his church in the true sense of the word, then there will be a larger number of people who are genuine members of his church who will be called of him, as Wilberforce was, to a political career. Uh, if you listen to Question Time and Parliamentary Debate, you will pick up the voices of the Christians who are putting the moral viewpoint uh, yes, it, throughout, throughout the proceedings. It wouldn't, of course, be true to say there are none today, but there are certainly none of the stature of Wilberforce, are there, who stand out. That, uh, that's perhaps what the question meant. What stood out is because that Britain, even in the early days, was a very strong uh, religious country, and mm. it's certainly gone down the hill. Mm. to ask about uh, the question you raised in your summary, or the point you raised in your summary, about uh, the extent to which we campaign for changing the law, and uh, whether we in fact can go all out for evangelism. Uh, in one sense, Wilberforce, or what you, you said, clearly believed there was a role for legislation, and, uh, uh, and many Christians now are very committed to changing the law because it's right. It may generate a reaction. It may be a backlash. Um, but they do it because it's right. And um, I just wonder whether you care to amplify what you said there about um, the role of legislation uh, in changing society. Yes, I wasn't intending to imply that we shouldn't uh, campaign for the alteration of immoral laws. I was merely... Um, making the caution that um, we mustn't think that through legislation we can create morality. Um, Wilberforce knew that while it was worthwhile um, legislating, if possible, for certain changes, in the end, men and women had to be made new by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. You think it's uh, like a negative function. It, it restrains evil, but doesn't necessarily promote yeah. Good. And, the does that. And, and in the long term, it can actually have the effect of um, doing the opposite of that, of, because of the reaction, actually um, bringing about further um, examples of evil, uh, as happened at the end of the 19th century. Uh, not that that is inevitable in any sense, I don't think, uh, and it shouldn't, that in itself shouldn't dissuade us from being involved in the issues of our day, I don't believe. Um, so it's a matter of the, the moral and political campaigning and the evangelism, uh, to use the word you used, going together, but always remembering that uh, the evangelism has to have the primacy, not for everybody in terms of time and commitment because some people may be very definitely called of God to the other work um, but looking at things from the perspective of the church as a whole that would be my emphasis what extent is 
did Wilberforce actually try to use the law? You mentioned uh, well, about one bill to change the method of punishment for females. Yes. Um, did he have a go at other issues? Yes, he tried actually to get the law on uh, Sunday observance um, tightened, but uh, he couldn't get that through the House of Commons. Um, he, there were, I mean, he was very involved, of course, in, in all sorts of humanitarian concerns, many of which did come before the House of Commons, not necessarily on his initiative, but with his support, um, the uh, factory acts, the um, uh, improvement of standards in the prisons and, and uh, movements of that kind. He, he supported, even though he wasn't the primary speaker in those instances. And some of those, of course, did succeed. There's one thing that suddenly stands over uh, when we were just mentioning there. Uh, I'm sure that the church ministers and bishops who were in Parliament uh, always tried to get the theory through uh, about the Holy Bible and God's work and everything. But yet, when the ministers are always uh, noting on the wireless of the bill of the uh, the sum the trading law, that not once is the Bible mentioned or anything like that by the persons who uh, are doing it, uh, i.e., I, the prime minister or whatever. Why? <coughs> well, if we're talking about people who are unbelievers, we can hardly expect them to be. Uh, giving biblical grounds for um, things. If we're thinking about people who speak in the name of the church, I think we have to say, have to admit that a large part of the professing church today uh, very closely resembles the latitudinarians of the 18th century um, and puts human reason uh, to be the judge of scripture rather than submitting it to scripture. Sound too arrogant. Um, that, that our problem today is to establish a sense of relevance of, of Christian belief and the relevance of Christian ethics. And I wonder if this sense of relevance does not exist on the basis at least of encouraging respect amongst the public or a recognition amongst the public, even if it doesn't amount immediately. To acceptance is because religiously um, denominations and all, I deliberately use the phrase um, theological persuasions that we become too self-contained and too self-indulgent and that we do not protest enough. Um, I, I have to confess that upon reflection I have learned most about protesting outside the church rather than within it. And this saddens me when I think about it. The church, for example, has never taught me how to write a letter to the Prime Minister or to the Home Secretary or anybody or anything. I've had to learn these things 
outside the church and joining with other people outside the church and so doing and I'm wondering if we've lost if we need to kind of recover ourselves in these things to establish relevance by the things that we make clear that we are concerned with and I, I think this is very important with the way our society is going at the moment because a lot is being done not much standing against it Yeah, um, I think as I look at the situation, I, I th- I'm not sure the issue is so much relevance as confidence on the part of the church, because um, the gospel is relevant, and that's that. But our problem is we've lost confidence in the fact that it's relevant, and therefore we are not as fearless as we should be um, in proclaiming uh, the gospel um, and in understanding why it's relevant as well, which is that people are sinners who are going to hell unless they repent and trust in Christ. Now, that is relevant to everybody. Uh, The reason why I said um, when I was talking about the lessons that we can learn from the life of Wilberforce, that like him, we should be fearless in confronting the sins of our day is, I think, perhaps saying something similar to what you were saying, that um, we, we do need to be speaking up, not, not because we are trying to make the church relevant, but because the gospel that the church preaches is in any case relevant to the sins of the day, which are the sins that people need to be forgiven of. And it's the, the lack of confidence in the gospel, I think, is the heart of the problem. Um, And uh, I think God will send revival when people are um, crying out to him for mercy because they are burdened with a sense of sin. And what he will use to bring that about is his church's uh, fearless um, exposure of the sins of the time. I'm probably saying something very similar to you in... Just slightly different words, I think. I I don't want to contradict you. Uh, Far be it from me ever to do that. But I want to add to what you're saying. I don't think it's just a matter of confidence in the gospel. I think it's actually a deeper problem than that. Now, how how do you react to this? I think it actually is confidence in the Bible. You see, confidence in the gospel means one thing to one person. Christ died for sins, etc., for sinners and all the rest. They, they can look at it in that term. It is actually the truthfulness of Scripture. And it's the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's the normativeness of Scripture that's the real issue, as I perceive it. And I think that's what Wilberforce, one great lesson he has to offer to our generation, is that we must stand by God's word written and nothing else. Now, sorry, I've given a sermon. You must react. <laughs> That's why I certainly don't disagree with that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, As far as I'm concerned, the only gospel is the biblical gospel. So I... um, It probably depends where you're coming from, doesn't it? Which vocabulary you use. Um, But the the whole of God's word you can call the gospel, if you like. Uh, Or if you prefer not to, then we'll we'll use your terminology. No, no, it's it's important, as you see. I mean, I was at our diocesan synod on Saturday. And I can hear liberal Anglican clergymen talking about, well, it's for gospel reasons we do this. And as I examine what they're saying, I think, well, they mean something different to me by the word gospel. 
And, I mean, they would not hold the view that I hold with regard to Scripture, for example. And I think this is the crux issue, and this is where the church is paralysed today, is that we haven't got a right view of what the Bible is. Sorry, I'm preaching again. Sorry, I'm just... <laughs> Oh, this has got everybody going. Yes, please. <laughs> I, I was struck in your talk by mention of the preparedness and the way that um, when Wilberforce published his book, and indeed when his pro- pro- proclamation society got going, people were, he, he found a ready number of people who would support him and stand with him. And when his book came out, he found that this was fertile ground. And somehow, as you said in your talk, society was ready for this. And I've been trying to think, are there any signs in our own society that there is any kind of readiness like this? I mean, it, okay, we've got to put over the gospel, we've got to talk about biblical Christianity, etc. But nobody in our day is even, it's just laughing out of court. It's a bit like normal, ordinary people. And yet Wilberforce suddenly, well, not suddenly, but seemed to have like, quite a cluster of people around him that would stand with him. And um, society was waiting for it. And are there any marks in our own society? Yeah. Certainly in 1797, uh, God had obviously um, brought Wilberforce to the point of releasing that book then because in his providence he'd already prepared the ground um, like you, I, I don't see many signs of that today. And it's something we therefore need to make an earnest matter of prayer. I do sometimes wonder, I, I'm not prepared to be a prophet, but um, with all the economic um, problems that we hear so much about these days, I sometimes wonder whether actually God is going to send total economic collapse to the Western world. And that will, in fact, turn out to be the preparation of people's souls for his word. Uh, A lot of people, even some Christians, would say what a disaster that would be. But if we learn to look at things uh, in the light of eternity, it may actually be the best thing that could happen to this country. I was was going to say, with the overview of history, that within the time span of your talk, there was a depravity, and then the Victorian ages had a morality, dubious in some ways. Then the, the depravity that we're going through now... Are we, in fact, I mean, I was thinking much the same thing. Is the wave, mm. are we on the, what is it, the head of the bottom the drop? Nadia, yeah. uh, the, the bottom of the drop. <coughs> there are just signs that we might be on My perception is that we're not quite there yet. <laughs> um, but I. I pray that God will bring us there if that's what it needs. In, in some ways, I don't want to pray that. I wish things could improve uh, and, and people could turn to Christ without disaster being necessary. But if it's necessary, well, let, let God send it.